what I would say, and I, what I, so what I'll try and do is just give you a, a little bit of an overview about our businesses um, and some of our strategic thinking, um, as well as uh, then perhaps a little bit more about Wellington Airport, which is clearly one of the more uh, adversely affected of our businesses. And it's also the one I happen to know the most about. So, um, and especially for those in Wellington, you might be interested in it uh, particularly, but uh, you might also be interested in it from the perspective of like, perhaps you're a shareholder in Auckland as well, because uh, we're all in the same boat to an extent. So as you can see from the screen, uh, that, that's our sort of our, our makeup. And we, we have a strategy, and it is very much of a strategy around our, our uh, portfolio of assets, where we try and have some assets which are, are very cash generative and very resilient, uh, and then others that are, that are more growth orientated and perhaps higher risk. And so our view is that by getting the right balance, we can actually provide uh, both a good solid income stream, which enables us to pay the dividend and, and interest on our bonds, et cetera, uh, as well as providing upside through the, the growth areas. Now, it'd be fair to say that the, um, the consequence of this crisis has not fallen as we would have perhaps expected, uh, and in particular, one of our historically solid or most solid cash generative businesses, Wellington Airport, which is, provides us with about $40 million a year in cash earnings, uh, it's effectively this year uh, not going to be providing much at all. So um, uh, could say that part of our strategy isn't looking so good. But uh, offsetting that to an extent um, is the fact that actually a particular CDC is coming through this with all guns blazing. and and it is in a position where it can actually start paying a dividend. So what you find with most businesses is that they, they go through their investment and in their higher risk stages, and then they gradually mature into a, into a more cash generative. And uh, as it happens, uh, a couple of the ones that were more speculative a couple of years ago have migrated into the more uh, cash generative. And the obvious one there is tilt, which is paying us uh, a dividend of somewhere north of $170 million because of having actually realized Snowtown 2 and, and, and achieved, I think it's a $400 million book gain on that uh, transaction. So just to go through our businesses, um, the, you know, the one that, if you look at this, this crisis, I mean, just to sort of talk a little bit about the sort of the overall shape of the, you know, the events that are unfolding, it does seem that it's actually, you can define it in three words, uh, and they're chosen because they sort of rhyme. And the first one, of course, is, is the disease, and that's having all sorts of consequences in terms of businesses, especially if you run things like airports. Uh, debt, uh, because obviously the government is out there borrowing colossal amounts of money to keep everybody um, afloat. And the third one is data. And I mean, we're all hearing every day about the fact that every human in New Zealand seems is shortly going to be uh, monitored as to their location constantly by the government to make sure that we're not um, passing anything on to anybody we, which wouldn't, wouldn't be desirable. So at those three, I think those three things can actually in many ways encapsulate um, how we are going to come through this business. I mean, because you've got the disease issue, which clearly has a very significant negative impact on Wellington Airport. Uh, I mean, we were budgeting for this financial year uh, earnings of about $3 million a week. I mean, sorry, revenues of about $3 million a week. We have about a million dollars a year, I mean, a week of costs. So we have about um, $25 million of interest and 
$25 million of operating costs. So, you know, effectively $2 million a week of, of free cash flow out of that business um, before CapEx. Uh, suddenly you don't have any revenue at all. So, um, you know, it's quite a dramatic uh, change to the picture. Now, uh, we do have some reasonably uh, commonly shared views about traffic growth. So we're not expecting that everyone's going to be not flying again before Christmas. And we do think the ski season will be viable for New Zealanders. We don't know about Australians, but uh, if you do have a lift pass to Cardrona, our view is you will be able to get down there and, and uh, use the lifts. So uh, we are expecting with Wellington Airport that traffic is, is going to resume on a relatively um, still constrained level, but hopefully not anything like as constrained as at present from level two. Uh, we are very skeptical that actually level two needs to be as onerous as, as level three. Uh, and so we are expecting that our revenues at the airport will be uh, perhaps $50 million a year. So in other words, from kind of nothing with today, they will actually recover to um, in the second half of the year to sort of in the vicinity of uh, 35-50% of what you would describe as normal. So we're actually reasonably optimistic that the airport, at least in a cash flow sense, is going to break even, uh, which is, of course, not exactly a great outcome when you consider it normally pays us a $40 million dividend. Um, you then go through our other businesses, Vodafone, um, it's doing a lot of, of stuff, but it, uh, whether that's actually translating into more profit is problematic. Um, I think the theory is, is that a lot of people pay for access to um, internet and data and all the rest of it. And uh, if they use a lot more of it, it doesn't necessarily increase Vodafone's revenue. So I think there are other factors which are driving their, their, their future, um, in particular this cost out type initiative and simplification of their business. So I'd say they're actually pretty neutral really in terms of the, um, uh, the current crisis. Um, Tilt obviously has had this big win last year. Um, so, you know, they've done okay. Uh, they have got a number of other transactions, in particular Dundonald, which is, um, they've been contracting that up. That's actually looking quite good. They're on hold building their wind farm in South Taranaki, but um, uh, that will get going again once the uh, construction crews are back on site, which I guess is this week. Trustpower hasn't been affected uh, particularly. I mean, there have been an expectation that perhaps bad debts would rise. It hasn't occurred so far. So Trustpower looks like it's sort of, come through all this pretty uh, even keel. Uh, offshore businesses, Long Road, um, that hasn't really been very effective. This is the business that's developing renewable generation projects in North America and then on selling them to investors. Uh, and that all seems to be very much on track. Uh, our sort of new uh, version of Long Road, which we've set up in Europe, has been put on hold, uh, waiting for the crisis to ease so that people can actually start doing things. Uh, and uh, the, the penultimate business, Retire Australia, uh, like all retirement villages, is massively focused on keeping its villages safe. So far as I know, they haven't had a single case of, of COVID in their villages, but they have got two big problems going forward. One of them is that uh, the house price market in Australia is like in New Zealand, has gone into a, a freeze mode, and people by and large have to sell their homes so they can move into villages. Uh, and the second problem which they have is that in Australia, unlike New Zealand, it's a state requirement. Uh, some states require that when somebody leaves your uh, village, you're actually legally obliged to pay them out within a certain time frame. So in New Zealand, if you happen to be a resident of, say, Ryman's, and you leave the village, uh, 
you or your estate have, you know, you just have to wait until Ryman's give you the money. So it's a very subordinated liability, if you like. Uh, and in Australia, it's not quite the same. So it, there's a reasonable possibility that we will have to put some more equity into Retire Australia to uh, ensure that they can get through this period. Um, which then bring, brings me back to the, the, the business that's been particularly positively affected through this, um, and that is Canberra Data Centres, or it's now been renamed as CVC Data Centres, uh, because of course now it's in Melbourne, I mean, it's sorry, in Sydney as well as Canberra. Um, data generally is exploding. Uh, it's sort of seen as the solution to a lot of people's problems, and there's no shortage of demand for this capacity. Uh, you might have followed Next, who did a, a massive rights issue, uh, or sorry, a placement a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, and their share price has gone up 50% since the outbreak of the uh, pandemic. So uh, the sector is certainly um, seen by a lot of people as, as offering a safe harbour and growth. So it's living up to all of its billings, basically. Uh, CDC has also recently won quite a major contract with the ATO, the Australian Tax Office. Uh, in Australia, they passed a law that said uh, all critical Australian government data now has to be in uh, data centres which they are completely secure and that actually meant they actually had to be Australian owned and the majority ownership of CDC is Australian uh, we're 47 or 48 uh, percent so that and also New Zealand under um, Trans-Tasman relations is treated as I think it's a domestic owner in any case but so um, to the extent that other data centres weren't owned by Australians uh, the in this case, the tax office is having to take the data out of their centres and put it into ours. So that's also good news. So, so you know, by and large, our businesses are okay. But I mean, if, as I say, there's, you've got these three variables in mind. Um, and I, you know, I think a lot of what is going to be perplexing for everybody as we get through the disease phase of this, and in particular in New Zealand, where obviously the lockdown has been so successful, as it has been in Australia, is how quickly do things open up again? Uh, we are reasonably optimistic that domestic air travel will open uh, in June, uh, and we think international air travel with Australia uh, it could be viable in September, October. Uh, so they miss out on the ski season. Uh, but if you're an Australian and you're looking to go on an international holiday, it's quite possible that New Zealand is the only place you can go. So, um, and similarly for New Zealanders going to Australia. So it's it's. It could be a very good news for us, and in particular Wellington Airport, because our only international services are basically with Australia. So uh, we are reasonably optimistic that the Trans-Tasman service will resume before too long, and that won't be too bad for us. Um, uh, I think Auckland Airport is going to be waiting a lot longer to get its long-haul international uh, to open. In fact, until as I think everyone's pointed out, until there's a vaccine, that may be quite some time off. Um, the, the other big issue, which I guess everybody's going to be looking at, um, is debt. And the reason I say that is you've got two sides to that coin. One is, of course, uh, individual companies' ability to fund themselves, um, on, but also the government debt. And, and our government is putting itself into a position where it's taking its level of debt to GDP from roughly, as I understand it, about 20% of GDP uh, and the bank's forecast now is that it will reach about 50% of GDP. So they are expecting that the government is going to borrow about $100 billion over the next three years, um, uh, which is a colossal amount of money. And, and the reason that it becomes very important for the future uh, forecast anyone's going to have is that 
is that obviously if they're injecting that level of stimulation, that keeps the economy afloat during a very difficult period. So, you know, that's good for um, the economy. But then, of course, uh, it has to be repaid. So uh, the challenge there is, um, uh, you know, is how are they going to repay it? Um, and I'll give you some interesting stats. And, I, you know, sort of, sorry, this is my sort of only real numbers part of this presentation, but I was doing these numbers today and I was discussing them with um, a couple of other people um, uh, uh, just to make sure I had it right. So, but it is really fascinating. If you look at the last national government, you know, nine years of um, English and Key and Co, uh, the, economy, the, the economy grew 5% per annum over that nine year period. That's, that's nominal growth. And of that, that 5%, about 2.8% was real economic growth, and about 2.2% uh, was the uh, rising prices. So 5% expansion in the economy. Now, if the economy were to grow again at 5%, it, it would take the debt, which was, let's say it gets to 50% of GDP, it would take the debt of 50% of GDP, and it would reduce that debt without having to repay a cent of the, of the money, it would, repay, it would reduce the debt down to about 33% of GDP. So just through growth in the economy, you can actually solve your debt problem, um, which is extremely easy, if, you know, highly desirable. If you can achieve the 5% growth, uh, it takes a lot of pressure off and the economy is doing its thing. On the other hand, if the government actually could only achieve 2% economic growth, um, then the, debt, the economy doesn't grow fast enough to reduce the debt burden from the 50% uh, down to what would be a more prudent level. And, and I know that, I saw a four-page advertisement in the Wellington newspaper last week for social credit saying, you know, why don't just monetize all the debt and, um, you know, who cares about what you borrow? Um, frankly, that's insane thinking because New Zealand, as we all know, has earthquakes, so they cost billions of dollars of the government's money. Uh, in addition to that, we've had two financial crises in the last or this century. So the idea that the government would remove its resilience and, and sit there with a large amount of debt ad infinitum is, is to be honest, is an appalling thought. So it would be highly desirable for the government to reduce the debt. If the economy is growing, very easy to reduce the debt. You don't have to repay it. It just shrinks as a percentage of GDP. If the economy grows at a much lesser rate, if it grows at only 2% per annum uh, for the next, for a nine year period, I've arbitrarily chosen nine years, uh, then the debt repayments per annum are over 1%. So effectively the government's gonna have to tax 1% of the economy each year just to repay debt to get those debt levels down. So you've got this predicament where it's totally okay to take on board a very large amount of debt, which is what Grant Robinson's doing, and nobody's arguing with that. But whether that's a burden on the economy and whether that's going to slow the economy down will depend entirely on whether we get economic growth out of all of this to enable repayment to happen easily, or if we don't get economic growth, then it's going to be very hard going and the economy is going to be like, it'll be looking like, Japan, Europe, and countries like that. So the reason I talked about the debt is that I think it is going to be one of the defining characteristics of how people think about the COVID crisis is it's going to be, okay, the government did a great job keeping the economy up, paying everyone's wages, all that good stuff. Uh, but how it repays that debt is going to be the defining feature of the next 10 years. Sorry to interrupt. If you enjoy this content, make sure you subscribe so you do not miss the next one and hit this like button to let me know that you want more information like this. Thank you. Happy to take any questions, really.
if I can now if I can get rid of that thing off the screen. How do you see the future for property owning companies uh, like Property for Industries? That's the first question. Uh, look, I, I guess, I mean, I don't have any expertise as such in this area, but, you know, the Wellington Airport's got a relatively, you know, smallish property portfolio outside of the airport itself. And we have about $100 million worth of investment property. Um, and our view is that uh, it's still going to be a good place to invest. I mean, we're, we're pretty relaxed about the, you know, obviously this year there'll be a certain level of rent forgiveness and, and postponement. Uh, but like a lot of companies, we're relatively optimistic that most of our tenants are going to survive. Um, and that to the extent that we provide them with a rent holiday this year, uh, they will pay us back by adding on some term to the, to the, to the term of the lease. So I, I would guess that by and large, landlords are going to come through this okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess if I was owning just retail uh, properties, I would be slightly more twitchy, which I, I suppose that's where the, the focus has been. I think our valuers, James Lang, seem to have a bit of a mindset that all property is going to go down in value. Uh, we're discussing, uh, we have a 31 March ballot state, so we're discussing the valuations with them at present. Um, and they, I think from our for us, they want about a six or seven percent decline in the valuation. It, it, when I was looking at their piece of analysis, I was thinking to myself, it looks like they've decided that, you know, all value should drop rather than it was particularly logical. So I wouldn't be too worried about what the valuers are saying at the moment, because by and large, it looks to me like they just set themselves up to lower values as a, because it means that, of course, they're not liable. Now, there's, there's two questions in relation to the expansion uh, there, Tim, and, and one is um, whether the airport's proceeding and um, whether the deposit is refundable. I suppose maybe answer that question first, and then we'll get to the second one. Actually, somebody did send me a, a, an email saying, uh, is it true that Wellington Airport, that the Mirabar Golf Course course is now looking to expand to a 36 holes and is willing to buy back uh, a chunk of the uh, airport land, so with the money? Uh, no, we, you know, we gave them the 10 million. Uh, so we bought, we've spent the money. Uh, I mean, I suppose we could always negotiate some sort of, you know, if you gave us back half of it, would you know, but I, that's not the intention. Uh, we have a very flexible uh, deal in respect of the rest of the golf course. So uh, we don't have to pay them the other 20 odd million dollars for as basically as long as we'd like. So effectively they have our 10 million we have the right to assume ownership of half of the course uh, at any time that you know we can afford it, basically, um, which may be some years away. But I think our expectation is, and uh, you know, coming back onto the sort of resumption of traffic growth, we and pretty much every single piece of analysis I've read, and I've now read a lot, whether it's been um, ICAO, uh, Standard and Poor's, McKinsey you name it, everyone, UBS, everyone's written reports on aviation's recovery. Uh, it would seem that there is a very strong probability that aviation will recover. Um, it's, and the question is how long it takes. And, um, you know, I mean, for us, our view is, is that Air New Zealand is going to be in great shape to provide a fantastic local service uh, once you can actually catch planes. Uh, they've got fantastic, modern, very fuel-efficient airplanes sitting there doing nothing. They've got the cheapest fuel they've ever had forever, almost. Um, 
and there's a lot of government charges which are currently on hold and they're not being charged uh, for you know some of these go the government uh, things which have always been a bit of an issue um, and uh, so I think Air New Zealand is going to be pretty eager to actually get uh, you know get people back on their airplanes at down the track of course you know it's going to be government restrictions and stuff like that that actually matters so, so um, um, further to that remark um, Rowan Johnson has suggested I can't see how they don't do another massive rights issue like in 2001 in relation to Air New Zealand do you have a comment in that regard well I, I think what Air New Zealand did uh, was exactly the same as what we've done at Wellington Airport um, so we've just agreed an arrangement with the airport, with its two shareholders, the city and um, uh, and Infratil, uh, to provide uh, an equity underwrite. So what we agreed with the airport is that the two shareholders will provide $76 million worth of equity, which is the amount that was calculated as, you know, sort of a, if things don't improve, this is what you might need type basis. And it also keeps the banks happy. Uh, and I, you know, so I think I think that basically New Zealand will be in exactly the same predicament. So the nine hundred million dollar uh, backstop, which can convert into equity, um, is it will be sitting there giving the banks and other lenders uh, confidence. I think what you will see happen is if things recover quickly, they won't need to use it, and if they do use it, they'll be able to repay it for cash. Uh, and but of course, they've got that fallback option if so if the, the market actually continues to be uh, you know sort of lower for longer then they they can give it into equity so it's a it's a very nice arrangement for Air New Zealand and Wellington Airport because in both cases you don't have to issue shares at a huge discount uh, you don't have to dilute anybody you don't do anything complicated uh, you just but you've got the backstop and you look at that as compared to Auckland Airport uh, I mean you know one of the reasons that Wellington City Council was happy very quickly to, to support the underwrite of the equity arrangement in Wellington uh, was that they don't get diluted. Um, and if you, you, know, you look at what Auckland City missed out on, you know, by sitting through that issue, they got completely screwed. I mean, you know, they, I think the gap between the, the uh, $4.60 issue price of the rights issue versus the $6 price in the aftermarket was, you know, $80 million or something. So effectively, the Auckland ratepayers, by not participating, for went $80 million. Well, um, you know, I, I think that's not a great deal for them. But I, I think, the, you know, the, coming back to the question, I, I would say there's a reasonably good chance that Air New Zealand will get through this without having to uh, take the money off the government and convert it into, into equity. And um, and this is probably uh, the last question before we move on to Vodafone is, uh, has Infratel actually given consideration to uh, the shovel-ready projects which are available down in Wellington from the uh, central government? Have, have you considered in terms of expanding the runway? Uh, we, so at the airport, we have um, several projects which, were, which are fully consented and fully ready to go and but we're now postponing because A, we can't afford it, and B, we don't need to do it right away. But they're all projects that will be done in the next five years. So we've said to the government, look, we've got $100 million, a new fire station for our uh, fire crews, uh, seawall protection along the, the, the side of the runway, which goes on to Lyle Bay. 
um, and earthquake strengthening and, and, and a couple of other bits and pieces to do with resurfacing the runway. So all of these projects which would employ people very quickly, we're very much ready to go. Uh, and if the government were to give us the funding for that on a concessional basis, um, you know, not so that it would actually be free, so to speak, but if they were to provide that funding and we could repay that after say five years, they would get their money back. So we, you know, we think these would be great projects for what the government are looking to do. I suspect that they are going to do, uh, you know, stuff they want to have, you know, politically want to have. So I suspect they'll be looking at things like light rail, uh, which of course is, you know, frankly, a, a, you know, a less than zero returning project. So I think the benefit to cost ratio of light rail is something like 0.1, i.e. every dollar you put in, it's worth 10 cents. Um, they're not going to get their money back. Now, you know, if you've got, if you've got debt going through the roof, which is what's happening at the moment, you should be, all of these discretionary, let's get the economy starting again type projects should be things where you get a positive return for the economy, economic return, not a sort of feel good return, and you get your money back. So I would say they shouldn't be doing any of it with the public sector. They should be doing it all. All of this initiative should be with the private sector. Uh, and we've certainly put our hands up for some, and I know that Vodafone have also put up uh, their hand, especially around rural broadband, that uh, they would also like to be able to roll it out um, using this, this government initiative. As I think the critical question here, which we, nobody knows the answer to at this point, is going to be, is this going to be just a sort of lolly scramble stuff, you know, you know, what Julianne Genta wants, you know, let's go and spend some money on, on uh, faster trains between Hamilton and Auckland or something or other, or is it going to be stuff that actually produces economic growth and, and where the government will get its money back? So I, I hope that's a very major political issue because um, so far the government have handled this thing incredibly well, but if they go and squander billions and billions of dollars on very low returning investments, that would be a real shame. But on the extension, um, you know, that would be a very, you know, it's sort of, it's a long way out type project. Yeah, I mean, the only way you can really justify that particular project in the short term is because it adds resilience. You know, at the moment in New Zealand, you've only got two airfields that are over two kilometers, uh, Auckland and Christchurch. Uh, so, you know, if, if uh, that situation happened a few weeks ago when Auckland Airport's runway was damaged and suddenly, uh, you had a you know, major, major problem. So if I was the governor, I would certainly be thinking about, well, maybe it would be good to have another long runway in the centre of New Zealand, um, one that we would be willing to support. But um, I, you know, that we hadn't, we didn't put that project forward because we didn't feel it was as good as the other ones which we could uh, propose. And, and perhaps on the theme of resilience, uh, Vodafone obviously a recent acquisition. Uh, is it meeting expectation and how are Canadian partners looking at it? Uh, look, I'm not very much at the coalface of this. I, I think it's, as I understand it, it's, you know, like there was always about a three-year plan in terms of um, improving the back office functionality and simplifying the systems, which was going to take out quite a large amount of cost. Um, so, sorry, I'm just going to wait one sec. I've got a dog in my room and the dog wants to get out. Apologies for that. Oh, your point. Um, just in case you thought I was only crying in my room. Um, so I think I think Vodafone, as I understand it, Vodafone's gone very much according to plan, um, which is this is all about 
fixing up back office things, um, which is all rather boring. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, I, I guess the issue, the other issue alongside is the 5G rollout, where what we would hope is that the Commerce Commission is relatively um, relaxed about allowing Vodafone, Spark, and Two Degrees to actually share capacity, as they have with the rural uh, broadband, uh, because clearly that the, 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 you know, the problem with 4G, which I'm sure you're all aware of, is that people invested vast amounts of money in 4G and didn't make any money on it because they competed, it all got competed away. So they put a lot more money into their networks and they just provided more for the same price, which meant no return on the capital that was invested. Uh, we're very keen to, to avoid that outcome um, on 5G. And one way to do that is to actually share facilities so that you don't have a tripling up of the networks. Um, you actually do have more shared facilities. Quite how that would actually be regulated is, is not entirely clear to me. Uh, but I guess the rural broadband is a good example of what perhaps, um, you know, it does actually work there. And Robert made a good remark in terms of obviously during the lockdown, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of, lot more use in terms of tech. So uh, data availability is up. Has, um, again, this might be a little bit outside um, your ability to answer the question, but has Vodafone and CDC been able to capitalise on this somehow? Or are there... Are there means for them to capitalise on all this additional data which they probably have access to? Uh, as I understand it, the answer is kind of no, uh, because they, they tend to provide, you know, they charge you for capacity, and if you don't use much of it, um, or you do use all of it, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. They, that their revenue is the same. So uh, as I understand it, they've sort of come through this relatively unscathed in a positive or negative way. So I suppose more or less no change in that regard on the, on the basis that, um, yeah, it's, it's more or less package related. And, and from my own experience, um, un, unlimited data seems to be more the, more the, the way how these um, companies are going about. I'm just looking at all those are all covered now. The, I suppose the, the the question for me, just to mix it up a little bit, is around uh, renewable energy. I, I recall uh, Rod Drury, founder of Zero, um, suggesting that the opportunity for New Zealand is in renewable energy on the other side of um, COVID-19 uh, in terms of the recovery. What are your thoughts on that, Tim? Uh, a sort of a couple of theories about this. Uh, and I mean, I'll give you a good example around um, electric vehicles as a sort of segue into that point. So, you know, the price of oil has come down very dramatically, uh, which means actually the relative competitiveness of petrol cars versus electric cars has significantly improved. So, uh, you know, actually petrol is now gone ahead of electric, uh, even if you increase the, even if you have a relatively high price on carbon. Uh, the price of carbon has been pretty well flat. I mean, it looked like at Christmas time when the government was talking about the price of carbon rising, it ro rose up a bit, but it's fallen back down to the sort of $25 a tonne level, uh, which you probably don't notice when you fill up at the pump. I think it's about eight cents a litre. Um, now, the the, will the government allow the price of carbon to rise a lot to, comp to offset the fact that the price of petrol's fallen? 
I think Jacinda's sort of, you know, after there was a bit of a fury a, a year or so ago about uh, fuel taxes, she sort of said, you know, no more, no more nasty stuff for motorists. So I, I'm not too sure what she's going to do there. On the other side of the coin, um, the big companies who have been investing colossal amounts of money in electric vehicles, you know, Volkswagen is, you know, tens and tens of billions of dollars into electric vehicles. I mean, they're all uh, in, you know, the same sort of difficult financial times as everybody else at this period. So I actually think that the money that would have gone into uh, improving the economics and viability of electric vehicles will probably not, will probably be postponed a bit. So actually, if the, if the expectation was the price of petrol is going to rise and the price of um, carbon is going to rise and it's going to make petrol cars less attractive, and in the meantime, there's going to be massive investment in electric vehicles, so they, therefore they become more attractive, I, I would say this crisis is kind of bad for that equation, um, at least for, let's say, 12 months. So I, you know, my guess is that the electric car revolution could be slightly postponed. Rod's um, observations, I mean, when I was talking to him about this, you know, he was sort of, you know, he, you know, the big thing which New Zealand's got, the, the, you know, the big handbrake on more renewables, remembering that we are very heavily renewable today. And I think, you know, 86% renewable, uh, the industry thinks it can get to about 92%, uh, you know, without doing anything dramatic. But the problem that stops you at 92% is that you, is that, you know, where's the storage? And at the moment, the storage is basically in gas and coal, uh, which you can burn uh, to provide coverage in those dry years. Um, what Rod was suggesting was that there should be uh, a big increase, a big investment in hydro storage. And I think that's totally logical. You know, I mean, it's, it's inescapable, really. The trouble is, under the RMA, it's virtually impossible to do that. So there hasn't been a large water storage facility built in New Zealand since forever. Uh, I think Apua in South Canterbury was the last one, which was you know, now many years ago. Uh, for reasons that I don't fully understand, Shane Jones you know, disbanded Crown Irrigation. So the fact that the Crown you know, was in the game, not very effectively, but at least they were in the game trying to create more water storage, uh, and then Shane got rid of it. Um, so. You know, I think the, the problem about getting New Zealand above that 90% or thereabouts level of renewables is, is water storage. Uh, and at the moment, there isn't really a clear line of sight to how that problem will be solved. Cool. And look, um, Rowan's just asked another question just in relation to Auckland. Um, oh, sorry, Wellington Airport. Uh, in terms of the lack of dividends and if that'll have an impact on the dividends um, to shareholders this year will, will that be passed on or what's what's the implication of that uh no the dividend uh what we've agreed with the city uh and the banks is that uh last year's profitability which you know the earnings there were about 103 million dollars so slightly up on the prior year notwithstanding a pretty grim march uh is that we will pay the dividend in june based on last year's profitability. So that will be a check to Infratil of uh, roughly $40 million. So this year, Infratil will get its 40 million. Next year, uh, there, obviously there's zero chance of there being a dividend from Wellington Airport. So that the problem uh, or the cash flow for Infratil is fantastic this year, uh, because of course, you know, we're getting the huge capital return from Tilt. Uh, so we are going to be sitting on very large amounts of cash. I mean, I. I I, I noticed the somewhat ambiguous phraseology around Infratil's dividend, uh, 
but I personally would hope that it does get paid. And, and I'd be surprised if there was any massive reason why it couldn't be paid, given that there seems to be good cash earnings for Infratil this year. And next year, you know, other stuff, will, you know, CDC, I'm sure its dividend will be increasing by that stage as well. So next year, I'm sure will look after itself one way or another. And Philip, his team will be working on that even now. But this year, actually, our cash flow is looking pretty good and our cash earnings are looking quite good. I'm going to have to ask you to refer to your crystal ball for these last two questions. Um, and they're a nice way to finish. Any thoughts on the state of equity markets? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, like a lot of people, I've looked at the, um, the bounce back and have just thought, you know, this seems like a complete disconnect between the uncertainty in the real world and the confidence with which the equity markets have, have operated. So um, I, I do find that rather strange. I mean, New Zealand has got fairly predictable sort of businesses. I mean, you know, a lot of them should actually, I guess, come through this without the sort of ramifications that we've seen in some overseas markets. There's not a huge amount of leverage in New Zealand's corporate scene. Uh, so I would imagine, and this, the level of corporate failure looks like it should be very low in this country at that sort of, at the, at the you know, listed type level. But I'm still surprised that actually um, that the equity markets globally and in New Zealand have been as resilient as they have been. So like everybody, it's, there seems to be a disconnect between the uncertainty in the real world and the, the relatively um, resilient equity prices. But I've got, I've got no more expertise than anybody else in that space. And, and, and on that basis, are there any sectors that Impel is keeping its eye on? At the present, uh, you mean in a, in a good way or in a bad way? Probably both, I'd say. I mean, it'd be interesting to hear your insights both ways. Well, look, I, I think one of the I was reading a really interesting article by McKinsey by McKinsey yesterday, and it was saying that you know we've had this immense government engagement with uh, the commercial sector um, globally. You know, the level of the, suddenly the government from being over here suddenly like it's everywhere. It's paying people's wages. It's providing billions of dollars of, of support for the system. It's pumping billions into the financial system to create liquidity. It's offering bailouts to companies. You know, the government, the government isn't going to sort of like, you know, go to level one and say, okay, that's it, it's all over now, you know, go back to do what you're doing before. So, you know, there's clear, and this is why this concern, and I was saying before about whether their, their assistance to get the economy moving again is in productive sectors or whether it's in unproductive sectors. Um, I, think you, I think if you're looking at businesses in general, you've got to look at what their relationship is going to be with the government. And it's really hard to work that one out. Um, you know, that's, that would be my, my feeling. I mean, I'm sure that if you're a, a simile or an A2 and you're, you know, effectively you're just exporting, then, you know, it's a different equation because you just, it's just, you know, the export market's nice and simple. But if, even if you're a Ryman, or a, a, you know, little old Auckland Airport, or um, other large or energy companies in New Zealand, the, the rest of New Zealand's NZX say 20, um, a lot of those businesses are in quite heavily regulated sectors, and the government is is likely to um, to want to to want to change things. Um, now, quite how they change things is anybody's guess. I mean, for instance, I'll, I'll give you a little illustration. So. At the moment, you know, the government is sort of talking about travel between New Zealand and Australia and the world in general, but New Zealand and Australia and saying, well, there could be all sorts of restrictions. You know, there could be, you know, quarantines, there could be 
you know, all sorts of things and monitoring and stand downs and you name it. Uh, so there's a lot of negative possibilities which will make travel between New Zealand and Australia uh, quite a pain and quite a pain and more expensive because the government likes user pay in these sort of spaces. Um, or what we're trying to do is say to them, look, this is your great opportunity. You can actually sweep away all of these stupid border restrictions. You could really simplify things massively between New Zealand and Australia. We could basically be, the whole thing could be facial recognition. You don't need a passport. Um, you know, we could do the whole lot electronically. So you can, it could be to all intents and purposes, a domestic flight with duty free. <laughs> we don't want to lose our duty free. Um, so you can see that you, you've got these different, you know, are there, is the way the government actually leaves its fingerprints on the, on the businesses, is it going to make businesses more inefficient, slow things down, you know, life's a bit, you know, productivity goes down, or will they actually do things which actually could improve productivity? And, and those are really, you know, nobody has the faintest idea. And to be honest, I very much doubt that Grant Robinson has those ideas either, because one thing I've noticed about the government and, you know, so I really, this is a call to the members of the Shelters Association, is that this government has been fantastically responsive. You, you know, you have to you look at, they were slow to get started, and then they, like, got into it. They did all sorts of, you know, the, the wage deal originally was only for tiny little businesses, and then it was, like, for everyone. They've, all the way through this process, they've, they've turned up, whether it's been in the health areas or the financial support areas or the, uh, the banking system. So... They've been very flexible. And I think the more feedback they get from people about that we want your what you're doing now to be improving productivity and we want investment to be in productive areas, I, you know, I, I think they're very responsive to, to um, uh, public opinion and to people sort of getting in touch with them. So you know, the more they hear from people saying, don't squander this opportunity, and by that, I don't mean do dumb stuff, you know, just because you want to, you know, have everyone, uh, you know, bicycling around Wellington or something. You know, that's, it's kind of like, it's cool that everyone's walking and biking around Wellington, but at the end of the day, it's just not good. It's not really what, where the future is, is it? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this content, I appreciate if you leave your honest review on any podcast app. It helps me to improve my next episode or you can simply request any topic for me to research. Do you know any friend that may benefit from this information? Please forward this podcast to them. Otherwise, stay tuned because more good stuff coming soon. Thank you.